BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, everybody. Hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show for Friday, March 19th is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, and the Chicago Reader. Benny J, take it away. All right, we're still waiting uh, for Rick Tallender from the Chicago Sun-Times. Dennis is reaching out to him to speak. I don't know why I had a feeling. Uh, wait, hold on. I don't know why I had the feeling uh, that we're going to have troubles. Oh, uh, looks like we got him. Oh. Let's see. Let's see. Yes, I see the click. But the, the little, there he is. <laughs> All right. Hey, you can hear me. Rick, <laughs> yeah, I, want to, uh, I want to apologize for the technical difficulties on my end. This is really a smooth uh, operating podcast. We've been in business for two years, but for some reason, Mercury's in regression, as my wife would like to uh, say. And my camera's not working, so all you can see is the top of my head. Yeah, I see that. Uh, yeah, that's which nice. is the, actually the best part of my uh, look. Anyway, um, so anyway, Rick, I'm glad it's working out. We had a lot of fun talking about all the... Um, the handicaps and obstacles we had to overcome to get you on this show uh, in terms of getting people to hear you. And I'm really glad you are. And all right, let me just do a little introduction. Uh, Rick Tellender is a longtime uh, columnist, sports columnist for my beloved bright one, the Chicago Sun-Times. But he had a life before he worked at my beloved bright one, the Chicago Sun-Times. He worked for many years for Sports Illustrated. And I was an avid Sports Illustrated reader from pretty much uh, – my first year of high school up until recently, Rick, we'll talk about why I quit while getting sports illustrated. I'm sure you have some thoughts on that as well. I've written about it. And as a result, it was through sports illustrated that I learned everything I know about boxing. I followed all the great uh, fights, Ali Frazier, Ali Foreman, the three Ali Frazier fights, actually articles written in Sports Illustrated. And then into the 80s, uh, Marvelous Marvin Hagler. I was a huge Marvelous Marvin Hagler fan. I was just obsessed with him. There was just something about the way he carried himself. Uh, it was a typical boxer story. Uh, Rick will get into it more, how he came up from very humble origins and like fought his way to wealth and prestige and prominence and celebrity. And then he just walked away from it all. And this is where it connects to Rick. Because about a year after he had walked away from it all, I opened up my Sports Illustrated that came in the mail, and I read an article written by Rick Tellender where he had tracked down marvelous Marvin Hagler in Italy. And it turns out that the greatest middleweight of all time, that's my opinion, uh, had walked away, sort of like Jim Brown in football, to make movies. Only unlike Jim Brown, he wasn't making Hollywood movies. He was making Italian language movies. So, Rick, I just had to bring you on the show uh, to discuss that story. Marvelous Marvin uh, Hagler, boxing. And then, as I I warned you, I'm going to throw a Bears question at you at the end. No ducking and dodging, Rick Tellender. So, anyway, um, so why don't you start by 
giving folks an idea of where you were in your life in 1989 and where Marvin Hagler was when you folk, when you two uh, met in Italy, go ahead. Okay. Now that story I believe was 1990, if I'm not mistaken, because uh, it was a cover story for sports illustrated, which I had been at for, well, I wrote my first story for them in 1972 when I was just out of college uh, freelance and then, so I was well into my career with Sports Illustrated, enjoying the hell out of it, traveling a lot. And I happened to be, <laughs> just happened to be in Italy, in Florence, on their dime, covering the World Cup of Soccer, which was going on. That's why uh, I'm pretty certain it was 1990. That's when the World Cup was there in Italy. So I was in Florence and then Rome and, and another city or two. And I um, got a call from somebody at SI said, you know what? We found out Marvin Hagler is in Milan. Why don't you go, why don't you arrange something? Um, and they gave me some numbers and that and go up and see him. And I said, yeah, because I had time off in between. It's a weekly magazine then. There was no online element to it whatsoever. So um, that's what I did. I, I was in Italy for three weeks. Uh, staying in an old, well, in um, Florence, I was in sort of like a, an old building. That I think it was built like 500 years before, 400 years before. Beautiful apartment, complete expense account, anything I wanted to eat or drink. Had a um, another person from Sports Illustrated there helping me out. She was fluent in Italian, and I had like an Italian guide to help, you know drive me around and stuff like this. I mean... I'm sorry, Ben, but that's how journalism used to be, and it ain't anymore. But um, uh, seen marvelous Marvin Hagler, who, by the way, uh, legally changed his name to Marvelous Marvin Hagler because he got upset a couple of times when, or at least once, when an announcer did not announce him that way as he got into the ring. So it is Marvelous Marvin Hagler. And I uh, went up to Milan, and we hung out. For you know, good part of me, a whole afternoon, I would say. I asked him everything that was going on, he, and uh, you know, the story sprang from that. It was wonderful. Now, Rick, uh, until that moment, uh, had you ever written about boxing, or you were like me and just following it uh, through the prose of other Sports Illustrated writers? No, I had written about boxing, not for Sports Illustrated, I don't believe, but I had four freelance stories. Uh, for the Sun-Times, uh, way, way back. And I would go to, um, oh, man, I had a couple of buddies who'd go to all these boxing matches that would be set up, like at the Aragon or at even smaller little ballrooms. I remember one, it had to be at the maybe the Union League Club. Guys were eating lunch, and they put a ring up in the middle, <laughs> and there were fights. I had written a, uh, a big story for SI uh, about... Um, some Mexican boxers in Chicago. And I think that was before, I, I don't know the exact date. I think it was before the Hagler piece, but you know, I had followed boxing. Ali was such a dominant figure that if you didn't follow him, you actually weren't following history yeah. and social change because uh, that's how important he was and the things he was doing outside the ring, let alone inside the ring. And I'll never forget one time at the Aragon watching I th it strikes me that one of the boxers was roughhouse Tom Fisher. I think he was a carpet layer by day. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, and it was another guy, young Joe Lewis. 
So anyway, but Ali shows up, and he just kind of struts around the ring, and the crowd went absolutely crazy, just yeah. chanting, Ali, Ali. Nobody knew he was going to be there, and he just walked around, waved at people. It was wonderful. So, yeah, I had done boxing before, and this was a story that was actually, you know, not quite so much about describing boxing as more describing a former boxer and why in the world he retired when he did. All right, let's get into that. Uh, uh, you talked about where you were in life uh, in 1990 when you uh, uh, met Marvin, uh, Marvelous Marvin Hagler. Where was Marvelous Marvin Hagler in his life in 1990? And he would have been uh, approximately 34 years old. No, no, maybe like 35 years old at this time. So where was Marvelous Marvin Hagler in his life in 1990? Well, it was uh, a little bit of uh, you know a dilemma. He had left everything in the United States and moved without any prompting uh, to Italy. And he was starting to act in, I don't know how low budget, but action movies that were set up. And he would be one of the heroes, you know, bare chested, going through the jungle with a bandolera, you know, and a machine gun, that kind of thing. Came, uh, was in several movies. And he had basically tried to flee, if he could, if he could do that geographically, the heartbreak, the shame, and the anger over having lost to Sugar Ray Leonard in a fight that was his last fight. It was a 15-round decision, or maybe 12-round, I believe, 12-round decision. Yeah. I think they stopped going 15 rounds. Uh, that he lost, and he was stunned. Because as he would say over and over, he never hurt me. And that was a match that I'm sure you know, Ben, uh, that uh, Marvin Hagler came at you like a, just like a machine. Head down, bald head, neck bulled, 160, 159 and a half pounds is usually what he would weigh in, somewhere around there. And he just was a seek and destroy machine. Sugar Ray Leonard on the other hand, was a dancing butterfly, a pretty boy who had uh, a nice sting to his jab. He could knock you out. But if you um, were like Hagler, he would just keep backing away. He would, uh, you know, almost like a, a Toreador with a bull. And it, it infuriated Hagler. He thought he won. Um, I watched the fight just on TV. I thought he won. But, you know, it was a close one. Anyway, he instead of doing a rematch with um, Leonard, which he'd been offered, I believe, $15 million. Yeah. The Petronelli brothers were his trainers, and uh, they came to him. People told him $15 million back in 1990 or 89 uh, when they might have made the offer. That's a lot of money. I, I'm saying you could almost uh, uh, add $5, 10000000 million to that to what it's worth today. Mm -hmm. And he said no. He didn't want any part of it. He was getting away from it. Uh, he left, um, you know, he did, I think he got a divorce. He might've gotten back with his wife. He just, it was truly a retreat from the world. It was kind of a fascinating thing to do. Uh, something that everybody thought wouldn't last. Oh, he'll be back. You know, he'll be, he'll be back. He'll, uh, like they do now. Everybody comes out of retirement. Doesn't matter how old you are. Hell, George Foreman. I mean, Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson, yeah. yeah you, you know, they're in their fifties. I don't, I don't know how old yeah. Tyson is, but they, they might be sixty. They would, uh, they would do it. But he did not. He never 
never came. Oh, well, I don't know how long he stayed in Italy. I, I know he's there for a number of years, but he never even thought about boxing again. Uh, so much to uh, pick up on uh, what you just said. I'll I'll start with this. Uh, marvelous Marvin Hagler just came at you in the ring. Uh, that was his style. And some people said that he went away from that in the Sugar Ray letter fight, and that's that was caused him problems until later in the fight. But let's put that to the side. Rick, you've been following fighters for a long time, uh, and football players as well. You played football yourself. You've written about it a lot. So what is it? Where does it come from, this anger? In 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 a in a uh, uh, athlete like marvelous uh, Marvin Hagler, you know what I mean? That just relentlessness to go right at someone, no matter how many times they're hitting him in the head. I mean, they're not just going at him, Rick. They're, he's getting hit in the head. Where does that anger come from? I'll tell you the truth, I've spent my whole career trying to figure that out, and I don't know. I really don't. Uh, it's a combination of. Uh, things that are deep inside that person, your upbringing, probably your genetics. I really don't know. I, you know, I noticed in football that there were players who didn't mind getting hit in the head. And, and that is something that I think nobody talks about uh, much at all. They say, well, this guy's like, what a tackler. Oh, my God, he just labeled that guy. And only certain people will do that. It's, you can teach a lot of people how to do it, but they don't want to. And you know, when I played football, I was always conflicted. I did. I, I really didn't want to do that. My head, I knew, was the center of my being, my thinking uh, process, my you know, my soul. It was it was everything that I you know that I was. I didn't mind you know damaging my knees or my shoulders or you know hip or you know. I mean, I, I ruined a lot of things. You know, fingers, ankles, stuff like that. That that's different. But it was my neck in my head, neck because of spinal cord injuries, and you saw enough of those people paralyzed. I knew Daryl Stingley used to talk with him when he'd come to the United Center in his wheelchair after he was paralyzed. So you, the the the, uh, the lessons were out there. Uh, the uh, you know the hard road signs of what this could lead to were there. But I always noticed in football there are, and you see it from the get go. You see it when kids just start playing like eighth grade, seventh, eighth grade. I saw, you know, um, I was helping out with a little football team, you know, suburban team, some kids. I think it was seventh and eighth graders. And some kids would just flat out run headlong into something. (laughs) What it is, I don't know. Uh, And with boxers, every punch you take to a normal person, every punch you receive in the head, or God knows in the liver or the kidney, you know, even the solar plexus, it hurts. Yeah. It's pain. It's physical pain. Why doesn't that bother some people? And why does the desire to win transcend all that? I, I just rewatched the uh, Thomas Hearns, Marvin Hag- Marvelous Marvin Hagler fight, lasted three rounds and Hagler won. And the first round might be the greatest round ever in boxing. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I, I've never seen anything like it. It's just as stunning to this moment. They come out, looks like two machines trying to kill each other. Uh, I don't know how many punches they throw. It's just boom, 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 boom. And it looks like Hearns is hurt after maybe the second punch, 10 seconds into the first round. And he continues to fight until the third when he finally just a series of blows. He eventually just kind of, it's not just one big knockout punch. It's just everything. 
he took a beating for the rest of that time when he could have just said, you know, throw in the towel. I'm done. This guy, you know, I, I can't do it. And Hearns, Hearns was a great fighter. Um, you know, it's notable to consider his physique. He was 6'1", 159 pounds. Mm-hmm. Think of that. I, I don't even know anybody. That would be like a, somebody would say, oh, man, are you sick? <laughs> and he's out there against guys like Hagler, who are five nine and a half, you know, 160, who are, are built like it. They'd probably train up to 180 and get down to, you know, 160. Hearns was just a skinny guy, but he was a, his nickname was Hitman. So he had it in him, too. Why did he do that? Why did he allow himself to be beaten to a pulp for another two and a half rounds? Um, I don't know. You know, they, they, they call that toughness. They call that desire. They call it, um, you know, just the, the never say die. They call it courage. They call it all kinds of things. There's an element to it that is pure stupidity also. But then you wouldn't be a competitor. But to win in anything hurts mm-hmm. a lot. You're running a marathon. You think that doesn't hurt that last mile? Um, you know, playing basketball, you have no no wind left. I think a lot of people don't realize playing basketball. You watch the NBA; they never even think about wind and your lungs when they're just on fire. Yeah. And you're guarding a guy who's who's still fresh, or maybe he came off the bench and you can't breathe. Um, you know that hurts too. But I don't think anything hurts. Or, or tennis. You see some of these marathon tennis tournaments. You're too, you're too weak to even raise your arm to serve. You can barely see straight. Yeah. But then you, you take boxers, and you're literally killing the brain. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know, Ben. I, to this day, I don't know what that is that makes somebody like that. I, um, and I asked myself this question. Why do I watch it? I've been watching boxing since uh, I've learned about Muhammad Ali. That was the guy that brought me in the box. I'm blaming Muhammad Ali. And I just was infatuated with him at a very young age. And that led me into boxing. And then reading Sports Illustrated, I would read about uh, the, the the lesser weights. And I just got obsessed with it. I've watched a lot of fights. Uh, and my wife just doesn't understand it. And I have a hard time explaining it. She came with me, uh, Rick, to my friend's house. We all got together at my friend's house. We had food. All the guys got together. When uh, Pacquiao was fighting Mayweather a couple of years ago, I forget when it was, uh, we all pitched in to get uh, yeah. to pay for it. And she sat through the whole thing. Jamie Foxx is wretched. <laughs> I love you, Jamie Foxx. But that star spangle that that uh, national anthem was not what your finest moments anyway she sat through the whole thing the interviews with charles barkley and all the celebrities and as soon as it went ding 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 she just <laughs> got up and she says i cannot watch this and left she and it, she didn't miss much of a fight it wasn't much of a fight anyway but like what do you ever ask yourself why am i rick uh who you know you're basically a, a compassionate human being why am i watching these two individuals pound the hell out of each other. Well, yeah, I don't think we should ever forget, and we do quite often, that we are just beasts. And we're all driven by this evolutionary imperative and, you know, the, the survival of the fittest. You, you may think, well, we, you know, we're in suits and, you know, dresses and we act civilized. And we have rules and laws and all that stuff. But you get right down to it we had to come out of the same swamp and jungle and whatever as animals do who fight. And that, that primitive sense of competition 
is always there for us. I know when I watch these things, I feel guilty. I, I feel like a voyeur. And sometimes it's just too much for me. MMA, I really have a hard time watching right? because uh, it's just too overt. Boxing, you know, don't forget, there are all kinds of rules, yeah. really all kinds of rules. You know, a great boxer might not be any good in a street fight. There's no kicking, nothing below the belt. You know, you can't hit from behind, no rabbit punches, no grabbing, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it truly is a science and art. And there is that element to it, to watch the defense, the offense, um, counterpunching, you know, what's a jab, an uppercut, how do you get to this? But then there's also just the sheer uh, hair-raising brutality of it. And that that appeals to us, I think it's something we don't like to think about in, in a lot of us. We don't like to think about a lot of things that we believe and I still believe, make women different from men. If we're not different in some ways, then why do we have two sexes? You know, let's just, let's be like earthworms and we'll just cut us in half to get another one. Uh, I think, I do believe deep inside many women, most women, I would hope, have that nurturing element to them. They are the ones that give birth. They are the ones that takes care of the child at the, at the beginning without a mother or, you know, a baby is, is lost especially back in days before formula and all that. So you take us back into the, you know, back to the primordial element. But that's what all this boxing is. And so the men will go out and fight the saber-toothed tigers or, uh, you know, they're stronger than women. That's a fact. Now, women can get very strong. I'm not going to deny that. And there are some that would, you know, kick my ass. <laughs> uh, I know that. Well, a lot of people would now. But anyway, uh, it's still a, uh, you know, the testosterone estrogen elements, so the hormones, all those things are factors. You know, now we have women that say they can do anything men can. They can be, you know, front lines in the military. They do box, they wrestle, they do all that stuff in the Olympics. They still don't do the decathlon, by the way. I've always noticed that. They uh, they do the heptathlon. Mm. I think they, I, I'm not sure which events they don't do that men do. But um, that being said, you know, for a woman to love blood sports, to me, is uh, counter to what is deep inside of us. And for men to love it, they are seeing themselves as that guy, you know, with the club or the spear, uh, you know, fighting off something. Back when, you know, survival literally did go to the fittest. You broke your leg back in the old days, you know, caveman or whatever. Good luck. Mm -hmm. You know, you're dead. And... When you see boxers going at it, the whole point, no matter what they say, is to attempt to sort of quietly kill the other person. Yeah. You, know, you say, well, I didn't mean to get there. have been a number of deaths in the ring, by the way, as we know. Boom Boom Mancini never really recovered from killing Duck Koo Kim. And you say, well, I didn't mean to do it. I mean, I didn't want that to happen. But if you think logically, what about the cause and effect. Well, this is what will happen. I compare it to, I fired a gun at somebody. I didn't mean to kill them. You know, I just wanted to wound them or scare them or whatever. Well, when you fire a gun at somebody, you have to assume it's going to kill them. I mean, that should be the logical outcome. When you punch somebody in the brain long enough, we've seen it way too many times. You know, they might, they'll get a hematoma, they uh, uh, swelling on the brain, all kinds of horrible things that really, if it doesn't lead to death, it leads to dementia. And that's just yeah. about a guaranteed thing. I hate seeing old boxers. I mean, old ones, because they're all 
I mean, I don't know how George Foreman's doing now, but I, w- I wouldn't give 10 cents for any of these guys' brains. Uh, I did a little research looking up some of these boxers, and there was a guy who fought uh, Hagler early on, Kid Coco, mm. <laughs> back when he had great names like that. Yeah. So I, so I looked him up, but it, apparently there were two Kid Cocos. But the one Kid Coco I looked up had 200 and what, what do you have? I wrote it down here somewhere. 244 fights, mm. professional fights. And he ended up wandering the streets, Times Square, demented, didn't know his birth date or anything, ended up dying at age 51 in a uh, uh, veterans hospital in North Chicago. And that's, you know, he was diagnosed with pugilistica dementia, which is CTE now, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, long you know, three words. But that's what they're diagnosing in so many football players now, because it only occurs from head trauma. That's it. There's nothing else. And, um, you know, it's it's similar to Alzheimer's, but it's different. So <clears throat> when we do watch this stuff, Ben, we try to put all that stuff out of our mind and just enjoy the, the spectacle of it. There's no place to hide in the ring. Yeah. You know, they call yeah. it the loneliest place in the world. <laughs> yeah. No, it... Uh... That was a that was a great riff, uh, Rick, uh, and uh, it leads into all potential conversations about what you think should be done uh, to prevent uh, this kind of uh, brain injury and trauma in football or in boxing. But before we do that, I don't want to lose track of 1990. Uh, I had it in Milan. I thought you were in Milan, but maybe yeah, you were in no, Florence. I did. I traveled up to Milan. From, okay, I was in Florence. I was just trying to let you know. How nice my little attack. No, you had a good day. I was working for the reader in 1990. We didn't go anywhere. I, a good day, I went to Skokie and uh, uh, Big Herbs on Dempster Street. Oh, yeah. Hey, listen, they, they good hot dogs there. Yeah. You I know just, what? I, listen, Ben, I got to tell you, because I, I love to tell this. We had expense accounts at Sports Illustrated, and I used to get these letters long about maybe, you know, September or something, October or even November, and say, uh, well, listen, you're way behind in your spending. You've got, you know, extra four or $5,000 you need to spend before uh, the end of the year. So basically get going. <laughs> well, th- I, they had the notion uh, that great writers go places. And it was just a different world. I, you know, like part of a Sports Illustrated article is that uh, Rick Tellender is in Italy with Mar- marvelous Marvin Hagler. You know what I'm saying? You just you took us someplace that we wouldn't ordinarily be. Yes. So that was part of. Uh, yeah, ben, I'll just say the key thing that we all learned, and you, we learned very early when you're writing a magazine piece. And actually, it was Dick Schaap at Sport Magazine who told me this. I used to I freelanced a few pieces for him. He said, "Rick, the scene is everything. That's what separates it from." So many stories where it's just a phone call. It's just a routine standard and face somebody. You have a scene that is what they'd call the production value in a movie. And that's yeah. what you got at Sports Illustrated. Yeah, you got the scene. And nowadays, of course, uh, the cameras are everywhere. So it's not that important. All right. but So there you are. Let's set that scene. You're in Milan. You're with Marvelous Marvin Hagler. His life has totally changed. He's making movies in Italy. And I, I and my tribute, I wrote to Hagler last week uh, where I um, quoted your story. Uh, I, I mentioned that I went back and watched some of these movies on, or as much as I could watch, 
because they're in Italian. <laughs> they're dubbed in. Brian Dennehy, a great actor, a great theater uh, stage actor, somehow or other, got dragged into this uh, Italian combat jungle flick which is it's so bizarre in so many levels that it's in Italian. It's got to do with the Vietnam War, I think. It's Marvin Hagler, Brian Dennehy running around with a Yankees hat on. It just is so bizarre. <laughs> and I'm just like, I just can imagine the pitch that the producer made to get ha- Dennehy oh, no, over no, there. The pitch was this, money. <laughs> okay. All right, well, you know, it, it, that might work for me too. I'd, I'd give it all up to go to Italy and make a movie with Marvelous Morgan Havler in a heartbeat. So anyway, you're saying, what what was the scene like? I mean, was he a total gentleman with you? Was he? He seemed like a uh, like he was um, quick witted, funny. At least that's how he came across in your article. What was the scene like hanging out with Marvelous Marvin Hagler back in Italy, in 1990? Well, he was absolutely a gentleman. He was impeccably dressed. I can't remember exactly what it was, but you know, it was a nice. Just a nice outfit. He uh, was learning Italian. He had, I think he ordered from the waitress. We were in a uh, really nice uh, restaurant, I think, you know, at some fancy hotel. And, um, you know, he just was relaxed. He was expansive. If I asked him a question, you know, and of course, they had to come around to the, um, um, the Sugar Ray Leonard fight. Had to come around to that. And he, uh, he he was very open about it all. He, it was truly, it was um, so interesting. He seemed like a burden had been lifted from his shoulders. Mm-hmm. And yet, as I said, you never know with boxers, uh, they'll come back. You know, yeah. they'll always come back. And he had been offered massive amounts of money for a rematch with Leonard, whom I'm sure he felt he could have beaten. But by the same token, he might also have known deep inside, hey, I know I lost something. I lost, I, you, people could tell who really analyze this. I just don't have what I had 10 years ago. And I don't, I can't, uh, I don't have his record right in front of me. He had something like 60 fights, right? Um, mm. he, and he lost one and uh, had two draws. I had 55, one and two or something like that. But uh, he might have also felt if I stay in the United States, I will follow <clears throat> the crowd the Petronelli brothers will convince me to go back for that one final fight. I remember talking to Freddie Roach a, a while ago, you know, the trainer for so many uh, boxers, uh, so many, including Pacquiao. And he said, and he'd been a boxer himself, and he's brain damaged because of it. He knows it. He talks about it very openly. Uh, he said, I've never had a fighter who left as champion. And that was, that was very interesting, you know, and maybe that got to, maybe that idea for Hagler is like, okay, you're going to leave on a stretcher or you're going to leave in bad, bad shape. And maybe this is it. But we talked about just about everything. You know, he, um, he didn't seem to have any, uh, I don't know, bad habits. He didn't seem to be crazy or suppressing any kind of, uh, you know, overt rage. Uh, over this, I knew he. Was, I mean, he'd been quoted many times as saying how mad he was about the decision with Leonard. That he just felt. I mean, he just kept saying, he "Didn't he didn't hurt me?" You yeah. know, he had that head like a, it was like a steel gong, or you know, like an iron bell. <laughs> it just everything seemed to glance off it. Nothing seemed to hurt him, and he just uh, couldn't understand that. And maybe his perception of what pain is 
to the head is not the same as any one shirt isn't the same as anybody else's. But if I had been talking to a businessman, uh, uh, you know, a mid-level manager, you know, a guy on his way up to CEO, and he said, yeah, that's that's who this guy is. Uh, I would said, man, okay, I believe it, except for the fact his nose was kind of boxer's flat, yeah. you know, and you get that scar tissue on your brow so it stands out a little. But he was in great shape. Um, yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was very enjoyable. Well, I uh, I stumbled upon that article. I remember when it came out. I I didn't associate it with you, as I said at the outset. I I just forgot who wrote the article, uh, and then I I found it when I was reading about marvelous uh, Marvin Hagler who died last week. That's uh, hit me hard. Uh, Rick, for some reason, when I got the news last Saturday, it was a week ago, that uh, Marvelous Marvin Hagler died. Not just because I was a fan of his, because I, I don't know, I, I i was so impressed that he walked away early. And I never wanted him to go back. I was so glad that he never went back. And I saw Tyson's fight, or portions thereof, uh, from, yeah, it is. Rick is showing me uh, the cover of uh, Sports Illustrated. It's a marvelous life is the headline, yes. Uh, anyway, um, and when I went and um, dug up the article to write uh, my uh, tribute to Marvelous Marvin Hagler, I saw that it was you, and I wanted to bring you on and get your reflections uh, and your thoughts on the great Marvelous Marvin Hagler. All right, now, before we leave, I'm going to ask you this question. And I actually, actually had a partial conversation with you. I don't know if you remember, in the hallway of the Sun-Times, back in the day when we were, before the pandemic, when we were doing the show at the studio there, uh, you happened to be in the office for some reason. I don't know why you mostly work remotely. Uh, and I was like, I've been a lifelong bear fan, Rick. I never played football except for flag football, but I love the bears. Gail Sayers, Dick Buck, you name it. Okay. Jack Brickhouse, Irv Cups. I'm an old bear fan, but mm-hmm. I just, when they drafted up, when they traded up to get Mitch Trubisky and left Patrick Mahomes undrafted, or I should say this, when I saw Patrick Mahomes, I said, I thought, how, Rick, could anybody who knows anything about football look at Patrick Mahomes and look at Mitch Trubisky and come to the conclusion that Mitch Trubisky would be better than Patrick uh, Mahomes? And I, I just walked away. I said, I am through with the Bears, I can only conclude that it's racial prejudice. And I say this as a guy who's been covering Chicago politics, which is infused with racial prejudice, Rick. I've been doing this since 1981. Yeah. And white people won't tell you what's going on in their mind more often than not when it comes to race and what how it colors their, their vision of the world. And I just, it's either incredible prejudice that you just don't think Patrick Mahomes has it or it's incompetence. So I've been struggling with this. I've come to the conclusion. It's some kind of subterranean racial prejudice that no one will admit. And that's why I'm through with the bears. Am I being unfair to the Chicago bears? Rick, go ahead. Okay. Well, first of all, are you a big Andy Dalton fan? No, no, my God, that just accentuates it. <laughs> Every quarterback they get is more mediocre than Mitch Trubisky. And it all begins with mediocrity. <laughs> oh, my God. Sorry, Rick. I didn't mean to. <laughs> I didn't mean to. I apologize for it that. It does outburst. inspire some passion, doesn't it? 
Yeah, the Bears have not had a great quarterback in over 70 years. So, uh, you know, Jim McMahon could have been possibly, but he was just self-destructive, didn't work. Okay, if we are, right, let's, let's take this side. Cut the Bears some slack. Maybe, and here's Ryan Pace. He's going to be the genius of all genius general managers. I'm going to pick the one quarterback higher than anybody needs to take him. Second pick in the round. Mitchell Trubisky, who's only played something like 14, 16 college games total. I'm going to outsmart everybody because this guy is the next Dan Marino. And, uh, okay, so we'll give him that. <laughs> Oops, missed on that one. That one didn't work. Uh, second, I could say it's possible, although highly unlikely, that um, that the other quarterbacks – that he, they, he could have taken were, you know, <laughs> Mahomes was at, uh, I can't remember, Texas, TCU or Texas Tech, one of those schools. Maybe he didn't see enough of him. Okay, we'll let that one go. The third thing, uh, Deshaun Watson, by the yeah. way, if you've gone after him, you've seen the reports. He has three women who have accused him of sexual assault. He's got to get that cleared up or he could be, that could be bad news for him as a player in the NFL. So anyway, who knew that or who knows if that's all uh, true or whatever. I think that the Bears have a systemic element of wanting players who fit kind of a McCaskey concept of what a good a good person is, a good upstanding person. I think the McCaskies at heart are very good people. They're, as we know, they're all devout Catholics. Catholic all over the place. And I don't know what Ryan Pace is or whatever, but, you know, I, I could see a lot of these old coaches, <laughs> general managers going to church with them. So <laughs> what is a good Catholic or it's a good white guy or, you know, Irishman or something like that. And maybe looking at Pat, the past in the NFL and going all the way back, you know, well, we're, we're the descendants of George House. We want somebody that looks like us. They don't make those decisions. It could be subliminal, subconscious, could be anything. Uh, and they may devalue without it really thinking about it. And, and I'm talking about Ryan Pace here too, but obviously they're, they're all in these things kind of together. They may devalue the skills that a black quarterback has as far as looking at the tra tradition of Bears quarterbacks. And there have been black quarterbacks, don't forget, with the Bears. Uh, there have been several that, you know, um, but they haven't, not for years. I mean, there was Henry Burris not that long ago. Uh, but they haven't gone after one of, you know, the great black quarterbacks who are playing in the game now. And so is it, is it, I, would, I would never call it racism. Is it racial? It might well be. And maybe now the Bears have learned their lesson and you hope they don't go overboard the other way and draft somebody. You know, there's a guy named Achilles Smith a while back that the Vikings took, I think. And he was no good at all. I mean, listen, black quarterbacks, white quarterbacks, any of them can be duds. Yes. You know, it's the most important position in all of sports, in my opinion. I think most people's most difficult to find a great one. So, <laughs> but they got Andy Dalton. So, uh, you know, you're, you can uh, go along with the, uh, the big redhead. Oh my God! You know, I that was a good riff too, and I was I was following you, and uh, 
into the the brains of the people who run the bears. It was an interesting uh, journey uh, in uh, to those brains. And so maybe you're you're raising some good points. Maybe it's like a subliminal thing. But I um I and I hear you, Rick. I hear what you're saying. And I, and I go back to basketball. I remember. Uh, Jerry Krause, uh, general manager of Chicago Bulls, was so proud of himself for having uh, selected Scottie Pippen as the player uh, targeting Scottie Pippen. They had to trade up for him on the draft day to get him, but he was very proud of himself, Jerry Krause, for getting Scottie Pippen. And in the aftermath, everybody wanted to denigrate Jerry Krause. I cannot understand why the denigration of Jerry Krause continues in this town, uh, but whatever. And they said, well, anybody could have picked Scottie Pippen. Just take a look at Scottie Pippen. He what? You're not that smart, Jerry Krause. Anybody could have known that Scottie Pippen was going to be good, which I always thought was a little unfair to Scottie Pippen because if anybody could have known it, Scottie Pippen would have been the number one pick in that draft. But this is my long-winded way of saying, Rick, that when I just, and I am not a scout, but when I look at Patrick Mahomes, the first time I saw him was, uh, I remember it was Monday Night TV. Uh, it was in his second year. And I watched this guy roll out, and as he was running, like effortlessly <laughs> throw the ball, like 50 yards. I haven't seen a bear quarterback throw that. Your bear quarterback drops back, sets. All right, am I set? He takes like a minute to set in. Then uh, every bit of muscle he has, he throws it. Patrick Mahomes is doing that, Rick, as he's running, rolling back. I'm like, how could they not see? <laughs> Even I in the bar. <laughs> Sorry, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have an old style and relax, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm not even talking about something I'm really passionate about. Let's talk about Chicago politics. Yeah. All right, Rick, yeah, you're you know, uh, the Jerry Krause thing. Yeah, just you know, one one element: the Jerry Krause, uh, you know, not liking him. Chicagoans yeah. are very savvy about people's personalities. They didn't like his personality. And here's the main thing. Don't forget, my uh, my friend's enemy is my enemy. And yes, Michael yes. Jordan did not like Jerry Krause. End of story. He loved Michael Jordan, the greatest player in the history of the planet. And if he didn't like this guy, then I don't like him. And I think uh, Krause suffered from that. Absolutely. In many ways, uh, the world of sports, I say this all the time about Chicago City Council, the world of politics, is sort of like a an older version of the high school cafeteria. And in that high school cafeteria, you have a choice. You walk out and you could sit with Michael Jordan, the coolest guy in the world, or you can sit with Jerry Krause, who kind of <laughs> looks like a slob. Ugh, he's not that much of a choice, Rick. You know what I'm saying? And so people are like, I want to sit with Michael Jordan. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, I always said, uh, here's the thing. Krause hung around the players. He was in the locker room. He was on the bus, the front row. And I described him as being like a, uh, this is how, how well he fit. He was a golf ball with a bunch of two irons. Yeah. And you could not find two different looking kinds of human beings from these live, very tall black athletes, this short, squat, double-chinned white guy. And it, yeah. was just, it, it was just such a huge dichotomy that it really, I thought, Jerry, just don't be around the players. You don't have to be in the locker room. Just divorce yourself from all that but he insisted on being there and uh you know and again that just jordan was uh he could be pretty nasty to people and that just everybody picked up on it but he really had a uh, he had a personality that would irritate you 
I'm telling you, because he irritated me. <laughs> but he did he do a great job as a general manager? Obviously. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he, you're right. He could be very irritating. Uh, in many ways, he was his own worst enemy. All right, Rick, thank you so much uh, for taking the time and uh, recounting these great uh, stories about Marvelous Marvin Hagler. And I urge everybody, uh, if you enjoyed uh, listening to Rick talk about it, to uh, check out the article. Uh, it's uh, a, a, just a great glimpse of this tremendous boxer who had enough sense and I think it's his greatest achievement in many ways, uh, Rick, to walk away. And you had the great fortune of uh, hooking up with him in Italy in 1990. So uh, you're a lucky man, Rick, in, uh, in many ways. Yeah, and you know, uh, one, one thing, Ben, I just want to say, I'm sad that he died. That's why we're talking about him. Uh, you know, he's five years younger than me, man. And I, you see that, it's like, oh, damn, sad, very sad. Yes, indeed. All right, Rick, thank you very much for taking the time. And uh, we'll talk to you soon, all right? Okay, Ben. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.